Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. I don't know if you have ever tried to trace your family history, your family tree or not. I know some of you are into that kind of thing. Others of you aren't. We haven't ever really done much of that in my family. I think it's probably because we might be afraid of what we would find if we dug too deep or went too far back. I I don't know that I want to know what's back there. Um, It's possible that as you get older, that's something that you might want to do and develop an interest in trying to figure out from whom you come and, and, you know, are you related to anybody special? You know, generally when you do that, you're, you're hoping that you're related to somebody famous or somebody that was significant. Nobody wants to discover that they were related to a serial killer, right? No, nobody wants to find out that they were like relatives to a white supremacist or something crazy like that. No, we want to we be related to somebody cool or somebody famous or somebody talented. Um, generally, presidents and senators, we would like that. Um, maybe Elvis would be cool if we could be related to Elvis. Give you an excuse to wear that, that uh, onesie that you, you've got in your closet that you can't wait to break out. I don't know. Uh, inventors, scientists, performers, you know, we want to be related to those kind of people. And we've been saying throughout this series that when Matthew began telling the story of Jesus, he began with Jesus' family history. But instead of taking a look at all of the good associations, and there were some really good associations, instead of highlighting the, the really great people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what you get, Matthew, he gives us this genealogy of Jesus, and it includes some people with somewhat of a a, a kind of a sketchy background, and he, he seems to include some people that you wouldn't think were re- really all that necessary. And in those cases, they, they're not people that you would be proud of. They're not people that you would go, oh, I'm really glad I'm related to them. It looks like Matthew went out of his way to highlight people that would not have been highlighted, that we most likely would not have highlighted. And, and when you're trying to figure out who the Messiah is, you would think, well, if, if I knew that that person was related to the Messiah, I might even try and hide that fact. But Matthew doesn't do that. And the reason that he gave the genealogy in the first place was to show the link of, of Jesus, the Messiah, coming through the line of David related to Abraham. That was very, very important stuff. And so he made sure that he did that. But for some reason, Matthew wanted to have a little fun. I don't know, maybe he he, you know, maybe because of his own background, Matthew was a tax collector, which meant that he was, by his own people, was viewed as a traitor. He was viewed as somebody that, um, you know, wasn't good to his people. He took advantage of people. He was basically used by the Romans to, to oppress in some ways the, the, the Jews that, he, that were, some of them would have been family and friends. And maybe that's the reason that Matthew seems to go out of his way to underline and highlight, and in some cases to add some people in, that you would think, well, he didn't really need to add them in. But I think he did it to show that not all the people that Jesus came from were good people. With with all the Jews that there were to choose from and all of the different families within the Jewish race from which to choose, God seems to have gone out of his way to include in the lineage of Jesus some people with pretty sketchy histories. Uh, Today we're going to look at one of those. She is a woman and she had a nickname and probably that's all I need to tell you for you to know who it is that we're going to talk about. Uh, You go ahead and turn in your Bibles to uh, Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2. And while you find that, I'm going to go back to Matthew uh, and we're going to read the genealogy. I'll read it for you and give you some context as to where we're going to go for the next uh, several minutes. 
So you go to Joshua 2, I'm going to Matthew 1, here we go. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And we talked about them last week and, and why in the world would, would, you know, of all the brothers, would God choose Judah when he had the possibility to have chosen Joseph? It d- doesn't seem to make sense to us, but the, the theme today is a bit the same as the theme last week. We'll see why today. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah. And then he adds a mother. And at this point, there haven't been any women. It's been all men. And then he veers way off the genealogy and includes this woman named Tamar. And if, if you know the story of Tamar, you'd go, well, I don't know that we ought to put Tamar in there. But he did. And then he goes back to the men. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother, and then he's going to add another woman, whose mother was Rahab. Now, this is a little troubling because not only does Rahab have a nickname, which we're going to talk about in a minute, but Rahab wasn't even Jewish. Rahab was a Canaanite woman. And she was not even a part of the race that God said, you know, I'm going to bring you into the promised land and and destroy these people. She was the people that that God was going to have them destroy. She was a Canaanite. Um, Basically, God said, you you know, they've had all kinds of opportunity, generation after generation, to turn to me. I've sent them my word. They have time and again heard it and rejected. And I'm just going to destroy the whole group of people. And that's the group of people that Rahab was from. And yet God is going to preserve this Canaanite woman named Rahab who's, who had a nickname, who had a business that you or I would not be proud of. And she gets incorporated into the story of Jesus. And Matthew seems to go out of his way to include her. And, it, and his, you know, it's, it's, he seems to do that for his audience then, and I think he does it for us now. So that, you know, it's almost as if he says, you know, you remember Rahab, don't you? Like, you remember that, that girl. This is a bit of a problem. It's a problem because according to the law, which had really just been given right before Rahab comes on the scene, according to the law, a woman like Rahab should be taken outside the, the community and stoned to death. And yet somehow she is allowed to live, and somehow her name shows up when we start talking about Christmas. And, all, and of all the Jewish women that we have in our history and all the people that we might you know, kind of point to and highlight as having been related to Jesus and all the people that Jesus might have come through, God looked over all of them and he picks this woman, this Canaanite woman, to be in the lineage of our Savior. Now that's interesting to me. See, we know her as Rahab the harlot, which which seems kind of odd to me. You know, were, were there so many Rahabs that they had to distinguish them? like the difference between Rahab the harlot and Rahab the seamstress, you know, like we have to make sure we're talking about the right one. Um, usually it's, it's when something's attached to your name, it's a, it's a positive thing, or we want it to be a positive thing. I told him in first service when we were naming our kids, I always was, try, I tried to be really careful. I didn't want to name our kids something that when they got in first or second graded, grade that they got, you know, their name kind of lent itself to something silly. Um, what you find out as a youth pastor is junior high boys can, can make fun of anything, right? It doesn't, it doesn't matter what your name is. They'll figure out a way to make fun of it. But we want our name to be associated with good things. You, you find that in the Bible, John the Baptist. There's a different from John the Beloved. You, you hear Jesus the Christ. 
You, you find about, uh, you know, this guy, Uriah the Hittite. Usually people have positive things attached to their name. And, and so I, I thought I would play a game, especially for the guys, because guys have a tendency, their minds t- tend to wander, and I'm at a point in the message right now where they might have already checked out. I'm going to try and bring you back, okay? So we're going to play a game. It's a quiz game, and I'm going to show you some athletes. This will probably be more fun for the guys than for the girls, although I was pretty impressed with some of the ladies and their knowledge in the first service. So, so you'll, you'll understand how this goes in a minute. I'm going to show you a name. That name, that person is going to have had a nickname, and I want to see how well you do with this. Now, I'm looking at some of my friends in here that I play ball with, and I know they're going to know about all these, but I'm, I'm trying to throw you a wrinkle or two. All right, you ready? Here's the first one. Now, I don't want you to say it out loud, but Roger Clemens had a nickname. How many of you think you know what the nickname was? By show of hands, how many of you think you know? And somebody want to call it out? The Rocket. So are we right? Was it The Rocket? Okay, very good. How many are one for one? Let me see. Okay, so let's go to the next one. I got 10 of these, so this is going to take us a while. Dale Earnhardt. This is pretty easy, right? You think you know this? See, even the girls know this. It's The Intimidator. Dale Earnhardt, The Intimidator. How many are two for two? All right, good. Let's go to number three. A little tougher. Carl Malone. I got people responding. They know this one. Call it out. Mailman. Carl Malone, the mailman. Who's three for three? All right, let's go to the next one. Easy, right? Easy. He's, he just retired. Big poppy. Um, my son, Bennett, I was just with him last Sunday night and Monday and a little bit of Tuesday, and we were talking, and we were talking about whether or not they're going to have kids anytime soon. And uh, the answer to that is no, they're not interested in having kids anytime soon. So, but the deal is, whenever Bennett and Lindsay finally have kids, um, Bennett said he's going to make his kids call me Big Poppy. So I'm all in on that. You know, I like that. That's a great nickname. Um, I like that one. Okay, so how many of you are four for four? Okay, let's keep going. A lot of Bears fans, everybody knows this one. The Refrigerator. Who, who's five for five? All right, let's keep going. I'm trying to throw you some wrinkles now. Who's this? How many of you don't even know who this is? Never heard of this guy. Okay, George Gervin. How many of you know George Gervin's nickname? Call it out. Iceman. Iceman. He was the king of the finger roll. Uh, great basketball player. How about Lou Gehrig? You know his name. You're familiar with him. Do you know what his nickname is? Let's see it. What are we, like seven for seven or six for six? How many of you have gotten them all so far? Uh, numbers are dwindling. Okay, let's keep going. We're almost done. Frank Thomas. What is it? Big Hurt. Yeah, the Big Hurt. Okay, got uh, just a couple more. Uh, one of my idols growing up. I wanted to be just like Pete Rose. If you've ever seen me play ball, you understand that. Um, you understand that. Yeah, I've, yeah, you've seen that, haven't you? I, I'm, they used to call me Pigpen because I never made it past the second inning without having dirt all over my chest. What was Pete Rose's nickname? Charlie Hustle. And then the last one, I was surprised. Very few people in the first service knew this. Do you know Ty Cobb's nickname? Anybody? Call it out. Let's see it. The Georgia Peach. Did anybody go 10 for 10? I'm just curious. A couple did. Okay. That's it. That's all the fun and games I got for you. Let's get back to serious stuff. All right. It is not untypical to have something associated with your name. You, you know, we've got, for our staff, we've got a nickname for just about every, I've got a nickname for just about every one of those guys. Some of them we don't say outside the staff because it's just better that they not be said outside the staff. But we've got nicknames, and um, maybe you've got something associated with yours. Rahab forever has been known as Rahab the harlot. And I'll tell you why this is a problem, because one day we're going to be in heaven, 
and we're going to round the corner, and there's going to be Rahab. And we're going to go, oh, Rahab the, Rahab, you know, how you doing? So we've got to come up with a new nickname for Rahab, and I think you're going to see today that we can very aptly and easily rename Rahab, not Rahab the harlot, but let's start to call Rahab, Rahab the helper. Now, I hope by now you found Joshua too. I want to look at a story there and tell you why I think Rahab is the perfect person for Matthew to highlight um, and have a place in the, in the Christmas story. The truth is, I would not have invited Rahab to my Christmas party, right? I mean, you, you probably aren't wanting the, the likes of Rahab to come to your Christmas party either, but God decided to include her. And it's significant because, as we're going to see today, her story is not unlike yours or mine. Um, and the fact that God would choose her over other people that, that would have been probably much better candidates, at least from our eyes, is once again evidence. It's the evidence that Matthew points to as he's trying to communicate to his audience the message of the gospel, and, and, and that the message of the gospel is that God's basically saying, you know, you're not, you're not going to come to me and say, hey, since you did really well, uh, I'm going to choose you to spend an eternity with me. Matthew's point is, that's not what I'm trying to show you or teach you. Matthew's point was, there's some other thing that's going on that allows God to include us and to call us to him. The message of the gospel wasn't, here comes Jesus, the helper. The message of the gospel wasn't, here comes Jesus to show us a way or, or to be a, a teacher for us, or a better way to live. The message of the gospel, and the message of what Matthew did not want his audience to miss, is this, that here comes Jesus the Savior. Here comes Jesus the Christ. Here comes Jesus the Messiah, the Rescuer. And, and he's come to save his people, not from their political woes, although some people thought that at the time, not from the financial pressure. He has come to save people from their sin. So consequently, we should not be surprised that God would use sinners to get him here because after all, that is why he came. He came for us. He came for sinners. And so if you're here today and you have a past and you would say something like, well, Brad, it's just not, it's not really even my recent, it's not my distant past, it's my recent past. In fact, Brad, my past is so recent, it comes right up into this morning. You know, my past is so recent that um, I would be ashamed to tell you what I was doing last night. Brad, I have a past, but... It kind of comes up into current time. If you're a person like that, and maybe your whole outlook on God has been because of my past and because of my sin and the decisions I've made, relationships, consequences, because of my reputation and my past, there's something between me and God, and I don't know how to get around it. There's something between me and God, and, and, and it's an obstacle, and I, I, I don't see any way for me to, to get to God. Um, I've got some great news for you today. God went out of his way to include a woman with a past to introduce the Savior who was Christ the Lord. Because the message for you and the message for me for the rest of our life was this. God sent us what we needed. We needed saving. We didn't need helping. Okay? We didn't just need an example. We didn't just need you know, somebody to kind of point the way. We needed a Savior. And maybe you feel alienated from God because of your past. But here's the message of Christmas. God does not feel alienated from you because of your past because he sent Jesus, his son, to change all that, to bring those who were unapproachable and, and to help make them approachable. That's why I think God went out of his way, and I think he skipped some of the Jewish women that maybe he could have used 
There were some great Jewish women in the Bible, upstanding, you know, made great decisions, pillars of virtue, really good women. And he kind of skipped over them, and instead he chose this woman that would come to be known as Rahab the harlot, Rahab the prostitute. So here's how the story goes. Moses uh, is ready to die, and he says to Joshua, "You're, you're in charge now. And so Joshua stands at the Jordan River. They're about to cross over the whole nation of Israel. And he knows that on the other side of that river is, are the Canaanites. And they have big cities and big armies. And all his people know about is wandering in the desert. They don't know about a whole lot else. They just, you know, they, they, they've been slaves in, in Egypt. They've been released. They, they aren't really a, known to be a warring people. They weren't supposedly all that great with weapons and stuff. And they've just been wandering in the wilderness. They don't know a whole lot about fighting. They don't know a whole lot about war. So Joshua sends two spies into Jericho to spy out the land. And these two guys go into Jericho, which really, uh, truth be told, it probably, Jericho the city probably was not a whole lot bigger than our Cross Lane campus. Now, um, it, it was probably bigger, a little bit, but not a lot, okay? So I don't want you to think this is like some massive city like Indianapolis. It's not like that. Was a was a small little city. They go into this city and they begin to spy out the city and they, they're trying to see what's going on and, and what should be their approach as they go in to take over this land. And apparently, as they're making their way around the wall, and I don't know quite how this happened, but somehow these two spies, I don't know whether they disguised themselves or what, but they end up um, kind of ducking into this house. Probably they were afraid somebody saw them or whatever. Um, can you imagine? It would be kind of scary going in like that as a spy. They, they, but they duck into this house, and, and when they come into this house, they come into contact with this woman named Rahab, and this isn't just any home. Th- this is kind of like a lodge. This is almost like a hotel, and Rahab is a prostitute, and apparently this is some kind of brothel with some kind of unspeakable things going on there. Well, somehow they meet her, and she recognizes that these are not Canaanite men. She recognizes that these are Israelites, and as we're going to see in a moment, the fear of God has come over the city of Jericho. Uh, God's reputation has preceded these spies, and um, you know, they've heard what's happened with other nations that have tangled with the Israelites and, and how they, you know, they tried to stand up to Israel, but it didn't work. And so these spies are at Rahab's house, and all of a sudden, some men from the city come to the door, and they're kind of knocking on the door saying, hey, we know that some spies came into your house recently. Um, we want you to bring them out. Now, at this point, you might ask yourself a question, and it would be a very good question. Here's the question. If they knew that the spies were inside the house, why wouldn't they just knock the door down and go in and drag out the, the spies and, and get the men that they wanted? Do you know why they wouldn't do that? Because you don't know who else you're going to find in this house right? It's not a good idea to go in there and start dragging men out of the house. You might drag your general out or, or somebody else. And so they were trying to be careful. And they said, look, if you, we think these guys came into your house. Would you please send them out to us? And so Rahab says, well, they were here, but they're not here anymore. They're gone. They left just before sunset. They've escaped out of the gate. And if you hurry, you might be able to run them down. So she goes back inside to where these two spies are hidden on her roof. And then in Joshua chapter 2, she has a conversation with the two spies, and we begin to discover, to discover some things about Rahab. I'm going to pick this up, Joshua chapter 2, verse 8. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, 
I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all of so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. In other words, we've heard about you. We've heard about your people. We knew you were coming. We're pretty much scared to death. Verse 10, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear And everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and my mother and brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and that you will save us from death. Here's Rahab. She's there in her lodge with all kinds of things going on, and she says, listen, I believe, okay? I I believe, and I've heard about your God, and I know about all the wonders that have happened around your God, and we've known that you were coming down to Jericho, and we know we stand no chance against you, okay? I know that. That's what Rahab's saying, because your God is the one true God, and I'm asking for mercy from you and your God. And the two spies say in verse 14, our lives for your lives. The men assured her, if you, don't, if you don't tell what we're doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She pretty much says, look, we, we've heard about you. We knew you were coming and I believe. And, and the way they would have said this back then, it's kind of like when I was six years old, seven years old, my best friend lived across the street. And, you know, as best friends do, they kind of fight and bicker once in a while. Well, one day when my friend Dwayne and I were mad at each other, um, we got into a my dad's stronger than your dad is contest. You ever done that? Where, where you say, oh, yeah, well, my dad could beat up your dad. Oh, yeah, well, my dad makes more money than your dad. We didn't have any idea who's, who, how much money our dads made or anything like that. But, you know, you got to represent. When he's over there talking smack, you got to, you got to come back. And so the way they would talk about gods back then was your God's bigger than our God or our God is bigger than your God. That's just how they thought. See, for them, they associated how good your God was or how big your God was with geography. Like if you had a lot of land, then you obviously had a big God. And if you didn't have a lot of land, you, you had a small God. And so the God of Israel was kind of a, a, a strange thing for them because the Israelites didn't really have any land, but the reputation of their God was huge. And so Rahab recognized, you know, you, are, you, you serve the one true living God. Your God is the true living God. And I would rather trust you men, and I would rather trust your God, whom I've never met, than I do trust these walls and this city and, this, and our army and our king. So please spare my life. When you guys show back up, please remember that I've, I'm, you know, I want to be on your side. So the two spies go back. They report to Joshua and they say, you know, now is the time. So, so the people of Israel cross the river. They start their march on Jericho. And Joshua gets his generals together to explain to them the battle plan, okay? So he gets them together. They're all sitting around, at the, you know, this, in my mind, I imagine this conference room. But, you know, that's not how it went down. But these guys are going to listen to the battle plan. These, these, the, the guys are going to be the leaders. And, and this is what Joshua says. Okay, here's how we're going to take Jericho. Um, 
We aren't going to charge. We aren't going to lay siege to the city. We're not going to do any of that. Uh, we're not going to tear the walls down. We're going we're gonna to march around the city on the first day. And then on the second day, we're going to march around the city. We're going to do that for six days. We're going to get up. We're going to march around the city. And then on the seventh day, we're going to march around the city seven times. And then once we've marched around the city seven times, when we do, we're going to let out this shout, and the walls are going to fall down. Now, can you imagine sitting in that meeting? Can you imagine being a general or somebody that's in charge of, like, taking the city? And you're expecting this grand, you know, military plan, and that's what they bring you. We're going to march around the city, and we're going to yell at the end. You'd say, that, you know, that, that's good. Do you have anything else? You know, please tell me you've got something else, because I, I don't know if that's going to work. You know, just in case the walls don't fall down, we need another plan. Joshua says, no, we're, we're, we're not here to demonstrate our military might. We're here to demonstrate the might of our God and Father. And so uh, we're just going to march one time for six days, and on that seventh day, we're going to march seven times. And sure enough, that's what they do. And on the seventh day, they come around that seventh time, they shout, And the Bible says that when they did, the walls of Jericho fell outward and crumbled. And when they did, the men of Israel went up into the city. Now, just a side note, a couple of things I want to share with you. I meant to bring a slide so I could show you the cover of the book, and I forgot to put it in there. Um, There's been a book written by a guy named uh, Jeffrey Scheller. He is a U.S. News and World Report uh, journalist. And he has written a book called, Is the Bible True? And in this book, um, this journalist has taken the most recent research about the Bible and archaeology, and and he's kind of put it into a book. And recent archaeological digs in and around the ancient site of Jericho have kind of revealed some things to scientists and, and have kind of, you know, they've kind of wanted to see how accurate is the biblical account and, you know, can it be trusted and that kind of thing. And it's interesting what they found. For the longest time, they couldn't even find the site of Jericho. They weren't, they, they, they didn't even, there were some people who didn't even think it existed. And so um, it's interesting that they have found the city and they've been able to um, do some archaeological digs and, and it really got interesting along about 1930 and then again in the, in the 1950s. But one of the things that they discovered, the second thing they found is that the city had been burned and it was burned quickly. And you'd say, well, Brett, why is that important? Well, it's important because that's the way the, the biblical narrative reads about the account. Um, they know this because they found uh, jars full of seeds and full of grain. And they were sealed. And they were charred on the outside. You say, well, Brett, why is that significant? Well, here's, here's what they figured out. Normally, when a, one group was going to go against another group, they would lay siege to the city. That was kind of the popular way to do it. They seal everything off. Nothing comes in or out. You know, no food comes in, nobody goes out to get more food, and, and so they would lay siege to the city, and what would happen is you would, you would get hungry and desperate for food, and then you would act and come out into your city, and then they would shoot at you and try and take you that way, or you would eat all of your food, then you would run out of food, then you would start to get weak, or you would die, and they would come in and take your city, and it really wasn't all that hard. That's the normal way they did it, but that's not what the biblical account is, because, you know, Joshua said, we're not going to lay siege. We're going to go in all at once, and we're just going to set everything on fire. Well, that's exactly what they did, and they found that in the archaeological account. It, it, it supports what the Bible has said 
for the account in Jericho. So as strange as that is, and as miraculous, and you know, archaeology seems to indicate that when Jericho was destroyed, the walls did in fact come a-tumbling down. Anyway, they go up into the city, they attack the city, and, and here's this amazing picture. The city's been destroyed. The army of Israel is pouring into the city, guy after guy after guy. There's, there's blood, there's warfare, smoke, gloom, and doom everywhere. And right in the middle of all of that, Joshua sends these men up to find Rahab and her family to escort them out. And in, in the middle of all this death and all of this chaos, clearly the reflection of God's judgment on a culture for rejecting him generation after generation, God reaches in, he takes one woman and her family and he plucks them out of that chaos, not because of her goodness, not because she has lived a life that you would point to and say, wow, that's a really virtuous woman, not because of any of that. In fact, it seems to be in spite of her sin. Because in her culture, to the best that she could understand, she placed her faith in the one true living God, and she placed her dependence on him and his people for her salvation. And God said, that's all I'm looking for. You know, I'm not looking for a whole lot beyond that. I, I, you know, in the middle of all this chaos, Joshua's men go in, they find Rahab, they pluck her out, and they save her life. And here's how this is described in Joshua chapter 6, verse 22. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out, all who belong to her, in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Verse 24. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it. But they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho and she lives among the Israelites to this day, which seems to indicate that when this particular record was written, Rahab was still alive. So that kind of makes you think that this account was fairly freshly written. The Bible says that when they got to Rahab and her family, they they. When they got her with them, they did not include her in the camp. They put her and her family outside the camp of Israel. Now, do you know why that is? They didn't know what to do with her. See, the Ten Commandments have just been given. They're, they're you know, not very old at all. The ink is probably still wet on them. And, and the truth is, a woman like this normally would be stoned to death. That's what, that's what they thought God wanted you to do with a woman like this. But here's this woman, and she's just saved the nation of Israel. And on the one hand, she's placed her faith in God. And on the other, you know, God has told us that women like this are supposed to die. And the Israelites don't know what to do with her. So they just take Rahab and her family. They put her outside the camp. And they say, look, we can't put you to death, but we don't know what to do with you. And you wonder if God in heaven may have smiled a little bit and thought, you know, that's, that's my point. See, it's my righteousness, righteousness and my judgment and my holiness and my law and my, my grace and my mercy and my salvation. And the contrast and tension of what just happened will one day be the contrast and the tension that will awaken the world to my greatness and my law and my mercy and my justice and my judgment and my grace. 
They didn't know what to do with Rahab. So they put her outside the camp, and that's where they lived for quite some time. And then something gets left out of the Bible. And we're left to kind of use our imagination to, to make it up. And so I would just kind of offer, I don't know if this is true or not, I'm just, this is just a possibility, okay? But one day, Rahab and her family are marching along with all the Israelites. Here they are, the Canaanites have kind of been folded into the Israelite group, but not entirely, and they're a part of it, but not fully a part of it. They're living outside the camp. And one day, a guy named Salmon sees Rahab, and he thinks, hmm. And he thinks to himself, I would like to take Rahab to lunch. So they, maybe they go to lunch, and it goes well, and he asks her to dinner, and that goes well. And the next thing you know, Salmon falls in love with Rahab, and, you know, and that was a problem because they weren't supposed to intermarry like that. There were foreign women. They were kind of you know, off limits, and you weren't supposed to fall in love with her, but he did. He fell in love with her and married her, and they had a son, and his name was Boaz. And Boaz married a woman named Ruth, and they had a son, and that son had a son named Jesse. Jesse would grow up, and he would have several sons. One of them was named David, and he would become the king of Israel. See, I wouldn't have invited Rahab to my Christmas party. But God weaves Rahab into the Christmas story. And in doing so, sent you and me a message that we dare not forget And the message is simply this, she is the perfect candidate because it is the story of us, a woman condemned under the law of God who was then saved by the grace of God. And God did not dumb down his standard and God did not dumb down his character. But he said, under my law, she should be put to death. But I've chosen her because she has placed her faith in me. She's the perfect candidate because she caused, because her actions caused her to deserve death and punishment and judgment, and yet her faith introduced her into God's family. And God wove her into the Christmas story in an unbelievable way. You see, you might be here today and you might say, Brett, I, you know, I can relate to this because my past is such that I, I just don't feel comfortable approaching God. I mean, I You know, I go to church once in a while, but I don't get too serious about it because I don't think I should get too serious about it. And I say some prayers, but I don't really say very many formal prayers because I don't know if God even wants to hear from somebody like me. Brett, to be honest, it isn't that I don't believe. It's just that I, I just think that my life and my lifestyle, not just my past, but my current past, my current lifestyle, I just think it alienates me from God. See, if that's you, and I, I've talked to people, and that's what they've said to me. Brett, you, you don't know what I've done. i got some great news for you. You may feel alienated from God because of your past, and you may feel distanced because of God, because of your behavior, even maybe some of your current behavior, but God doesn't feel distanced from you. And God doesn't feel distanced from you because of Christmas. And the message of Christmas was God sending his son into a dark world for people just like you and me. The story of Christmas is about God sending his son into a world of sinners while they were still sinners. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. That means 
God did not wait for you to make the first move. God didn't wait for you to get your act cleaned up so that you could somehow get good enough to approach God. That's not what happened. See, this isn't about God being so offended by our sin that we couldn't draw near. The story of Christmas is about Emmanuel. It's about God with us, the sinners. God didn't look at us and say, can't have anything to do with you. Not going to be even close to you. That's not what God did. See, you might in your mind say something like, yeah, Brett, I try to connect with God because of my past and my my current behavior. I'm I'm afraid God's just going to make me do some stuff and change some things I don't want to change. Well, you know what? When you come to God, you probably will change some things. But here's what I'm going to tell you. You'll do it because you want to. You won't do it because I made you or somebody in the church made you. You won't do it because somebody handed you a list of things to do. You'll do it because you will be overwhelmed by the grace and forgiveness of God. You will realize that God in heaven loves you so much that he was willing to forgive you. The Bible says it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. That means that he is so patient with you, that he's so forgiving, so embracing of you, that you look at him and say, God, in light of how you have looked at me, and in light of how you've treated me, I don't deserve your grace, I don't deserve your forgiveness, but God, I want to change because I want to honor you. You're you're probably going to change some stuff. Because, see, that's what happens when somebody comes face-to-face with their Heavenly Father. That's what happens when somebody comes face-to-face with the ferocious grace and forgiveness of Jesus. They just change, and they're forgiven. Yeah, Brett, but I'm just telling you, if I start trying to do the God thing or I move in God's direction, he's going to squash me like a bug. He's going to punish me. Two things. If God wanted to punish you, he would have done it already. He didn't have to wait for you to turn in his direction so he can go, oh, there you are. He's not doing that. In fact, some of you, one of your problems is that you've been running from God for so long that in your mind you have shrunk him down into someone who can't quite run as fast as you can. See, when you start thinking that way, what you're really saying is God has become so small that he can't quite keep up with me. Because I'm too fast. I'm shifty. i got to stay one step ahead of God. You have reduced God to a point that you think he's like you. And you think in some ways you're faster or better or can outsmart him somehow. And the truth is God isn't chasing you or pursuing you so that he can punish you. God is chasing you to deliver you. He's chasing you to rescue you. The story of Christmas is the story of a Savior who came into the world and took your punishment and mine onto himself. And the reason God sent Jesus into this dark world and the reason he rescued Rahab the harlot is to be a reminder and a testimony to the rest of us because God knows this. If you continue to run away from him, one day you will not just face a a, a temporary consequence for your sin, but you will face an eternal consequence for your sin. And so God pursues you not to punish you. God pursues you to save you. The story of Christmas is not about a helper. It's not the story of an example or a teacher. The story of Christmas is about a savior, the Christ, the Lord. See, Rahab is the perfect candidate because in delivering Rahab, God reminded us that the savior came for sinners while they were still sinners. 
It's a perfect story because it reminds us that God who was perfect and righteous and holy does not allow his perfection and his righteousness and his holiness get in the way of his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. And the invitation at Christmas is for all sinners. It's not just for the churchgoers. It's not just for the ones who got it right yesterday. It's not just for the ones who happen to be in church today. We don't have to be afraid of God anymore. I've met people that were afraid of God. You do not have to be afraid of God because all the punishment that we deserved was laid on Jesus. And with your past and your habits and your sin and your guilt and your shame, you can turn and face God and embrace your heavenly Father. See, your past and your sin make you feel distant from him but they no longer make him feel distanced from you because of Christmas, because of Jesus the Lord. Rahab the harlot, let me ask you a question. How would you fill in the blank after your name? Brett the, I've got some things I'd fill in there. I'm not gonna tell you what they are, but I got some things I'd put in there. Kyle the, John the, Sally the, I mean, when your name came up, just for you, nobody else, just for you, what would your nickname be? See, we've all got habits. We've all got junk. Rahab's story is a reminder and an invitation. It is a reminder of who we truly are and the condition in which we really find ourselves. And it is an invitation to relationship with the only one who can do anything about it. Rahab the prostitute, Rahab the harlot, the great, 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 great times, 28, the great grandmother, 28 times over to Jesus Christ. See, if today you're allowing your past or your current situation to cause you to run from God, you have no reason to run because his grace is is bigger and his mercy is bigger and his forgiveness is more powerful than anything you have done and at christmas the invitation to do something it's it's an invitation to do something other than just be a better person because you might do that for a while but you're not going to be consistent with that you already tried that it isn't about trying harder or cleaning yourself up or making yourself presentable It isn't about building a platform and pointing to it and saying, God, look at all the great stuff I've done. You're never going to do enough stuff to measure up, to be able to point to it and say, God, look at all my cool stuff. Christmas is an invitation for all of us. Brett the sinner. To fully embrace relationship with Jesus Christ. Listen. I don't know what you think coming to Christ is. It's simply a matter of this one thing. This is Christmas time, so this will make sense to you. At Christmas time, we offer gifts. Another way we say that is we're going to wrap presents, right? Presents. The difference between a gift and a present, it's presented to you. But there are some things that we get offered that we don't receive, right? Have you ever been offered a drink of water? Hey, can I get you a Coke? No, I'm good. 
hey, you want a sandwich? No, I'm, I'm okay. We, we turn down offers. We turn down things that are presented to us all the time. And so when someone comes and says, hey, I'm going to take all that nasty stuff and I'm going to exchange all that for forgiveness, I'm presenting to you forgiveness. Would you like to be forgiven? See, the only thing that separates me as a Christian from some dude that's driving up and down Lafayette Avenue this morning that that isn't a Christian, isn't that I'm a pastor, isn't that I behave better, isn't that I know my Bible better or any of that. Because the fact is, there's probably somebody driving up and down Lafayette that knows their Bible better than me, but the one thing that they've never done is said, I want to be forgiven. I want that gift. God offers you this morning the greatest gift you will ever receive, the gift of forgiveness. If you've never received it, It's going to end badly for you, but it doesn't have to. All you have to do is say, yes, I want to be forgiven. And you can know the love, grace, and forgiveness of Jesus Christ, and you would be amazed what changes that would bring in your life. Not because I'm making you do it or anybody else, but because it is God's kindness that leads us to changing our life. So if you've never given your life to Christ, if you've never been forgiven, please do that. And if you want to learn more about that, I would love to sit and talk to you about that. Talk to our staff, talk to one of the elders, talk to the person that brought you to church this morning. Don't let another day go by without receiving the free gift of forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, those of us who have already received this gift stand before you in total amazement that you would love us the way we are, but we know it's true. And every day we wake up in the newness of life in your son. Are we sinners? We are absolutely sinners. Are we going to get it right? We're all going to mess up today. Today we're going to mess up. But the beauty is, Lord, when you see us, you see a righteous person. You see someone who you've made us justified. It's just as if we'd never sinned. Father, for the person who's never given their life to you, I pray that whatever they think it is, you would remove that from their mind and you would help them to see it is nothing more than coming to you and being forgiven. That you went to great lengths, great lengths, to save us, to save them. And that you don't want to squash them, you're not trying to hurt them, you pursue them with passion because you want intimate relationship with them. I pray that maybe today is the first time they've ever heard that, that they would respond to it and receive your forgiveness. Father, it breaks us down. It humbles us. I can't do this on my own. There's no way I can be good enough to make you love me. You love me in spite of me. While I was still a sinner, you sent Jesus to die on a cross for me, for every person in this room, and every person in the world. And for that, we give you great praise. You are great and greatly to be praised. It's in your precious son, Jesus' name we pray. Amen.